today we're going to be looking at Nobody's Fool from 1994, written and directed by Robert Benton, based on a novel by Richard Russo, and it stars Paul Newman as Sully, an independently spirited 60-year-old man who starts to recognise that maybe he has a place in his community, and it's our Christmas special. So before we go any further, um, more than perhaps any other film that we've discussed, we just recommend you just stop and and go and track down a copy of this film. It it might mean you have to do that illegally because the studio hasn't released it in any format for about 20 years. But you should watch the movie before we talk about it because A, because it's better than listening to us talk about it and B, because it's a fabulous movie that you should experience fresh. And I'd say, you know, obviously this is going out mid-December, ready for Christmas, so the ideal way to watch this is to eat a massive plate of food, have a couple of beers, be like two-thirds awake, and just sit down and watch the movie. I would scale back on the food, if it were me, because I'd be asleep within 15 minutes. Mm. But I would say definitely have had a beer, and then have a strong drink halfway through, just to give you that extra cushion. Yeah, and yeah. Leave, your, leave your phone elsewhere for this yeah, one. Yeah, absolutely. And then come back and listen to us talking. So yeah, I I was a bit wary uh, suggesting this one. Yeah, this is your Christmas recommendation, This is my Christmas it? recommendation, um, because it's a hard sell, because it's basically just a small beautifully crafted but unobtrusively crafted feel-good movie yeah Um, but i mean it is really intricate the details in the plot that you know things that are set up that just feel like they throw away gags and mm. they they all pay off later on and without any big hurrah or fanfare every little payoff is just a a warm yeah (laughs) you know it's like somebody just squeezing you a little bit tighter in a nice (laughs) christmas hug i saw this one it was a recommendation um, from a friend, somebody I knew from university, who was uh, much older than me. He was, I think, I was in my twenties, and he was in his forties, and he had like a wealth of film knowledge oh, yeah. that I was just happy to bask in. Yeah, so sure. he would always recommend great movies, and we'd watch them. And I remember absolutely loving it. We watched this on on tape because uh, it's a few years later, but we did go and see Twilight. Oh yeah, I really like that. I watched that recently on Amazon. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen that since then. I've got it on on DVD somewhere. I picked up in a charity shop, but okay. um, I, I keep meaning to go back to it. I should have done for this, really, but I'm ill-prepared. Okay, so this, um, I mean, I thought this was a great one to talk about, mainly because it's disappeared off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't know much about it until, you know, even having watched it, until I you know, did a bit of research. But again, it's, it's just a strange world that a movie this good by a, a well-liked well-reputed director that got a Best Actor and Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar nomination yeah, that's right. can disappear off the face of the earth. Like The only reason I was able to watch it is because I've got an old DVD. It's not available to rent anywhere on Amazon or iTunes or anything like that. It's an like outrage. That. It's, it's an just... Outrage. It should be like on uh, Christmas watch lists all over the world instead yeah. of people watching Die Hard for the umpteenth time yeah, of Christmas. Groundhog Day again. Yeah. yeah, this... I mean, this feels like a really classic American Christmas tale. You know, it's... A proper blue-collar story about how the relationships between people that live in a community affect each other. Yeah, and it's you know it's all about real people, and it has you know without being overtly Christmassy, that's it's just it needn't necessarily happen over Christmas. No, year, I mean, but it's just it's just part of the fabric of the background. It's just it's, one of the wonderful choices that they've made in telling this story that it takes place over Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year, mm. and you barely see any of those holidays. You never yeah. see any of the usual trappings. You know, it's. But I mean, because it's it's set in in winter in upstate New York, it's it's constantly snowing and mm-hmm. and 
and chilly and cold. It's got that lovely, beautiful, crisp kind of snowy photography. Mm -hmm. it, it, it feels Christmassy anyway. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Even if it isn't kind of explicit. Yeah, but there's no like sleigh bells. <laughs> uh, you know, you get some fairy lights. You see one Thanksgiving dinner in the background and yeah. then it gets trashed. Mm. And not in like a National Lampoon type way. It's just a, you know, the side leaf on a table gives way. You know, mm. it's, it's all really nicely judged. Yeah, and it's something that's as strong and emotionally affecting as this, you th you would have thought it would have built up a reputation mm. through word of mouth through yeah, anyone yeah. who's ever seen it. Because, mm. you know, for me, I, I really liked it the first time I saw it. And then if some years later when I got it on DVD um, and then subsequently watching it again for this it's just you know you move to tears with little <laughs> moments and and the more you get to know it the more moving it is yeah that's it, 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 it repeat viewings are rewarded i watched it you know first time i've seen it was last week and the second time i saw it was this week mm. you know and yeah just the second viewing was much more rewarding than the first one yeah so are you um a Robert Benton fan? No, I wouldn't say so. He seems like, you know, a good kind of solid journeyman, doesn't he? He's, mm. you know, been a reliable pair of hands for decades, it looks like. You know, obviously Kramer versus Kramer is the one that pops up on on the list. And I have seen Twilight recently, as I mentioned. So, mm. yeah, you know, just a solid craftsman, it feels like. Nothing I've, nothing showy. I've read quite a bit about him recently. N not just, not for this, but um, I read that, and I've mentioned it before, that... Um, Pictures at a Revolution about the five best picture candidates. Oh, yeah, okay. He's days. in there as well. He's in he? there because he and Leslie Newman um, co-wrote Bonnie and Clyde. Oh yeah, okay. They, I mean, it, they didn't write it as a as a studio project. They wrote it and then eventually found its way to Arthur yeah, um, yeah. Penn. From what I read about him, um, and there is kind of interest in French New Wave mm -hmm. and and that sort of thing. Uh, he was he was more of a kind of aesthetic director. He was kind of more interested in film aesthetics and film art at the beginning of his career. And there's a really good... Sorry, I've got this little quote here from um, When the Shooting Stops, which is Ralph Rosenblum's... He was a film editor. It's his um, tell-all book from the early 80s. Oh, OK. An, ex an editor's expose. He cut one of Benson's first films as director, which is called Bad Company. He described it as... Um, oh, I really like that. Oh, do you? Yeah, yeah, it's really good. He described it as a, a, an a action western with no action. Yeah, yeah. Let me see. Uh, I was disappointed when I saw the first dailies coming back from Kansas, and I think Sam Jaffe, the producer, was nervous too, for he sent me out to the cornfields for added insurance. I spent a few days trying to discuss with Benson the photographic coverage we'd need for an adequate assembly. But I, saw, I found myself engaged instead in a conversation about aesthetics, lighting, composition, and other fine points of photography. All the things that I generally consider the secondary aspects of filmmaking. <laughs> Raise my eyebrows a little yeah. bit there. Um, Benton was all fired up about film theory and art, rather uninvolved with questions of drama and action, whether the picture would actually engage an audience. Uh, when it came to the edit, I found that Benton was completely unwilling to entertain any ideas about the overall feeling of the film. I mean, Ralph Rosenblum is famously grouchy in this book. You sure, sure. <laughs> but I think at some point in his career, like Benton learns, obviously, you know, with Kramer yeah, versus right, Kramer, right. he's you know he's moved beyond that and moved into telling stories that involve people. Quite yeah, I mean, with this, you know, he's definitely in with the characters in Nobody's Fool. You know, he's you're in. Oh, totally. Looking yeah. at them, but he also still has that kind of nouvelle vague brevity of storytelling he's not jump cutting but he is time jumping quite confidently you know between a week here a month there you know and an hour you know he jumps all over the place but mm. it's all very confidently done and there's only a couple of moments in it that that i mean we'll come to them a bit later on there's only a couple of moments in the film that that kind of stand out as kind of like you know film art um the rest of it's fairly 
you know, straightforward storytelling, but it does, yeah, as you say, it does have that kind of confidence. And what what do you know about Richard Russo, the uh, original novelist? I kind of did a quick Google and saw that a lot of his stuff, his Pulitzer Prize book, Empire Falls, is a kind of blue collar. Almost nothing. I know nothing about him apart from what I've. I mean, I've I've added Nobody's Fool to a wish list with the thought of reading it, but I'm almost scared to read it in case the voice of the book is different to the voice of the film oh, and somehow yeah. affects how I perceive the film. Yeah, sure. Because I don't want that perception to change. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a bit, you know, I might have to see if I can find it in an actual shop and read a few pages to see what the tone of it is. <laughs> and it's quite interesting looking at the rest of the credits that everyone involved is an absolutely solid pro. Mm-hmm. Um, the cast and crew are all really solid, aren't they? Yeah. I looked up the editor, John, John Bloom, who was um, brother of Claire Bloom, actress. But he... he worked his way up from minor British movies in the 60s, uh, like The Party's Over with um, Oliver Reed via Georgie Girl and then to bigger productions like The Lion in Winter. Oh yeah, okay. And then he worked with Attenborough on Magic. John Badham's Dracula in 79, French Lieutenant's Woman, mm-hmm. Gandhi. Oh, right. No, just really, really solid. Yeah, they'll do, won't they? Yeah, so. that's fine. Yeah, nice CV. <laughs> DOP John Bailey, again, incredibly solid CV. Films with Lawrence Kasdan, The Big Chill and Silverado. Oh yeah. Uh, interesting work with Paul Schrader, American Gigolo, Mishima, and Light of Day. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. And then I looked, just as a just as an aside, I looked at his more recent films, and they have very little in common in terms of who he's working with. But they all seem to be about life lessons for late middle-aged men. <laughs> okay. Like you look at the synopsis <laughs> of about four films in a row, and it's all about somebody in sort of middle age, late middle age, facing some crisis over a few days that will teach them okay. some serious life lessons. <laughs> Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's on a journey. Or maybe he just enjoyed doing Nobody's Fool so much that yeah, that's it. he wanted to make that again and again. Yeah, um, composer's Howard Shaw, isn't it? He's uh, you know, quite big and bombastic usually. He's almost uh, got it right here. It's maybe I, it's the, the, my least... In, the, my, the thing I enjoyed least about the film is yeah, the score. absolutely. It's a bit too obvious. Well, I remember Howard Shaw. Obviously, I grew up listening to Howard Shaw in Cronenberg. Cron- yeah, he's, he's done everything, hasn't he, for yeah. Cronenberg? But at this stage, in 94, I think he, he was established as the King of Fear because he'd done um, all Cronenberg stuff and he'd also done Silence of the Lambs, oh, yeah, okay. which everyone remembers, and he's just about to do um, Seven. So I think with this, I feel that he's kind of like stretching his wings a bit and mm-hmm. doing something Taking a bit breath. different. Yeah. And yeah, I, I do agree. It's I'm not going to argue too strongly against it, but it's not my favourite part of it. Yeah. Little... I mean, it is a Christmas movie, but it is like also... Yeah, it's a little bit of kind of Irish pipes in the background yeah, yeah. that's a bit... It's getting much. ready for hobbits and things, isn't it? Just <laughs> getting warmed up. Who else? Should we talk about the cast? Such a lovely cast. Yeah, and, you know, when you suggested a Christmas movie with Bruce Willis, I thought it was going to be the other one. Um, yeah, I think I think he's all right in this, actually, Bruce Willis. Yeah, did you know he took... Um, he was so keen to do this. He'd worked with Benton before on Billy Bathgate. He was so keen to do this that even though his standard fee was fifteen million dollars, mm-hmm. he took the like the scale, scale. wage of fourteen hundred a week. Oh, right, cool. To do this, and apparently he's uh, an extra in the verdict. Yes. So he'd worked with Newman before as well. <laughs> yeah, and he brought that up to him, and they went and looked at a tape. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he's not credited at all. He's not credited on the posters yeah, or the right. opening it was supposed credits. Supposed to be like a, a surprise, I guess. Yeah, but he's really good, isn't he? Yeah, he's really good. I'm slightly distracted because he's still at the point where he's not quite honest about his hair. <laughs> um, you can just see a very, like, a very, a very suspiciously clean hairline. Sure, sure. 
Um, Slightly, but, it looks like doll's hair a little bit, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, but he is. I mean, sorry, that's that's really mean and superficial. But you are a gentleman that's follically challenged. So yes. I think but interesting. You know, you're looking for the solidarity more than anything. Yeah. You're not criticizing him. You're waiting for him to come out of the closet. Yeah, exactly. And when when I look at this movie, it was interesting because I was looking at Prout Taylor Vince in it. And oh he, yeah. He has my hair. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah, more yeah, honest. Yeah, if you're being generous to yourself. <laughs> Um, but you know, without being mean to Bruce Willis, um, he's really good in it. He mm. manages to harness his swagger. Yeah, that's really it. It well. feels like they've sort of dubbed in his giggle at one one little point when uh, they enter the um, uh, Paul Newman's uh, family home, mm. and you hear a, a little giggle in the background. It just felt like, oh, what was that? Like contractually obliged? Yeah. And and I guess you know he is supposed to be an irritating character. Yeah, so, but he doesn't. He never drops it. You know, he just sort of maintains the kind of integrity of the character. He's he's never vain about that performance, mm. which I thought was really good. Yeah, Melanie Griffith. Yeah, really good as well. Really vulnerable and. Yeah, I mean, I, the notes I got was like deliberately kind of domestic and unglamorous. You know, sweatshirts, jeans, hair tied up, and as a performance, it's kind of like comfortable and open and relaxed. Mm. I think, again, she's doing terrific work in this because she was coming off a pretty bad career slump after few years after Bonfire of the Vanities. Yeah, but this, I, I don't know, I just feel like um, she's playing the character. Like, you know, again, there's no vanity to it. She's mm. she's vulnerable, and I think the character is kind of putting on a brave face and always smiling and outwardly joyous, but you also feel like the, the sadness that's underpinning her, her, her day-to-day life. I just yeah. thought it was, you know, you kind of get, you get it all, and you never see the the actor. Mm. Pruitt Taylor Vince. He's yeah. one of my favourite faces. He's, he's great, isn't he? I'm always be... happy to see yeah, him in something. Yeah. Unless uh, there's qu- there's just a few too many times that he's been typecast as Twitchy Killer. Yeah, sure. In a few things. Well, the I'd... first thing I ever saw him in was the X Files. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> I was I was lucky. I saw him in in Heavy. Heavy, yeah. Okay. That was. I mean, I must have seen him in other things, but. I saw him in Heavy and I thought that was... I mean, that's a companion piece for this movie. Mm-hmm. I thought that was such a lovely performance. That, yeah, yeah, he's great. He's that great. when I see him next in something like, I don't know, Identity, mm-hmm. where he's just... You know, they're using his twitchy eyes as as a as, as lazy signposting for a yeah, crazy yeah, person. Yeah. He's, uh, he's just a wonderful actor. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. You know, he's got a good, got a good solid career, hasn't he? Yeah. But it's weird. He's, he had the best early CV of anyone I've ever looked at because um, I IMDb'd him like his first screen performance even though scenes were deleted was Jim Jarmusch's Down by Law oh really then you're talking about Angel Heart wow. Shy People which is a well-liked Andrei Konchalovsky movie Barfly mm-hmm. Mississippi Burning an episode of Miami Vice and he's in Wild at Heart I don't remember him in Wild at Heart at all no I don't either um, and that's leading up to Heavy well this and then Heavy immediately afterwards mm-hmm. which must have been like his big breakthrough performances Oh, I could talk about Prince yeah, Albert's all day. That's a, that's a Christmas special. Yeah. Well, Philip Seymour Hoffman, obviously. Yeah. It's really nice. You know, he's only on screen for two or three minutes, but it's so impactful and yeah. quite a, uh, sort of crazed. But it's an odd performance for him because mm. he's very rarely a bully, isn't he? And yeah, he's like channeling that kind of. He's super masculine, you know, really threatening mm. and just a little bit stupid. Yeah, and he, he does that thing which. It's that thing that he does in a lot of performances, that kind of open-mouthed, hesitant, slightly stupid expression that he mm-hmm. does. But it means something different with each performance. Yeah, yeah. And in this case, it's kind of like a, a you know, your standard small-town bully Mm-mm. stupidity. 
Yeah, yeah. That kind of wet-lipped, open mouth. <sighs> yeah, there's a lovely moment where he's gone too far, and then like you can see it all on his face, where he, he, he his face literally says, "I've gone too far." <laughs> yeah, I completely forgotten he was in this. Mm-hmm. The name came up on the credits. Oh, God, right, yeah. <laughs> Jessica Tandy, one of Stoke Newington's most famous. Yeah, that's right. I, yeah, you've got the Stoke Newington fact in. <laughs> I I am not of the generation that knows much about Jessica Tandy apart no, from. I mean, the... I I am DB'd her, and obviously there's Driving Miss Daisy, and then I didn't really recognise much down the list. You know, lots of TV and that kind of stuff, but nothing really didn't seem like anything significant. I think that's a generational thing. Now, I think. I think people who are 20 years younger than us could, could look at IMDb and a lot of things that are significant to us would just be like background noise to them. Yeah, okay. And I'm not suggesting that Jessica Tandy's career is background noise, but it's just she's been in so many things that have come and gone that just haven't been part of our experience. That, yeah, sure. But she's lovely in this. She's yeah, just she's the really epitome good. of the wonderful, cultivated, yeah, yeah. loving elder relative, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, but good at kind of showing like the disappointment at her own child and, you know, there's again you know all of the characters have a lot of work to do mm. and they all do it very subtly and with a lot of uh, understatement and nuance you mm. know it's yeah and she's she's great in it so now we come to the uh, the main course paul newman paul newman yeah i mean bloody hell he's so good in it isn't he i'm really looking forward to seeing more paul newman films mm-hmm. as an adult because when you're growing up, I mean, this is something that, you know, you skim through the reviews for this movie and Roger Ebert said that he was so much a part of the landscape of American film that you stop noticing how good an actor he is. Yeah, right. For me, you know, growing up, he was so much a part of the landscape of just pop culture that, you, again, you just don't really notice him. Mm. Um, and he seems like something your parents are into. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I don't know what your Newman experience is, but mine is pretty much like the towering inferno and maybe going back to Butch Cassidy, but a lot of kind of, you know, just stuff that's on TV. And, yeah. you know, I never hunted down a Paul Newman movie until, I think until like, recently. It didn't help that, that his legendary movies were before my time, effectively. And then the movies that... I mean, we're grouping this in with them, and obviously this is a very good movie. Mm. But he, but the, So I guess my point is that everything that I've gone and watched that he's in, he's good in everything, you yeah. know, from playing uh, Doc Hudson in Cars to You Recommended the Verdict, which, like, he blew me away in that. And then I watched Twilight just as a mm. an aside, and he was excellent in that. <laughs> you know, whenever you put a Paul Newman film on, like, he's going to be excellent. I remember, actually, as a kid, watching Slapshot, the ice wow. hockey movie. That was one of the films that all the kids at school were watching. So mm. that was probably my first Paul Newman, followed by Towering Inferno. Okay. So there's, like, he had a whole career before that <laughs> point. You know, that was his kind of, like... I don't know, late late period before yeah. this kind of last renaissance, but he didn't stop working. Well, it's that's the thing. All the, all the movies that that were coming out in the eighties, um, even when you look back on them now, like eighties and early nineties that are in, don't look like particularly appealing or good films. Mm. Which I think was part of the thing that kept me at a distance from it. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of sort of absence of malice type things. And oh, I'm yeah. I'm not judging that film because I haven't seen no, it. I haven't seen it either. Good. But yeah, you look at it. I, I think, bet it is though. Or I bet he, at the very least he's going to be good in it. Yeah. So it's one of the journeys of discovery I'm looking forward to in the next few mm. years is watching more Paul Newman. More Paul Newman. Because my God, he's fantastic. He's so good in this. Yeah. I mean, you don't even question the fact because you know at this point he's like a Hollywood legend and he's been around for you know half a century at this point. And this you put on Nobody's Fool and you know it's just the character. You know, yeah, you are meeting someone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. He comes through the door as a really sort of uh, 
that's it his his entrance into the film he just walks through a door you know into an old lady's uh, and just sort of starts sort of jabbering on about whether she died in her sleep and you know it's a little bit kind of direct and yeah I don't know it's just just the character you're just looking at Sully aren't you that's yeah. it in all of my notes you know sometimes you get mixed up with the character and the actor never I just wrote Sully all yeah, the way through I've it's got just... Sully and Sully and Sully and yeah so maybe we should talk about the movie itself um, and go through it yeah yeah I think so I mean we, you know there's this idea that you go through scene by scene and look at each line of dialogue and you know I think I could quite easily do that with this movie I've made copious amounts of notes <laughs> but um, you know I, the point that I would always be referring back to is this idea that you're watching a film that's so intricately written and played that it feels like you're just observing life and it just passes by without any real gravitas but because the film is so well made everything that people say or do mm. has a consequence or it pays off nicely at the end of the film and I think that's one thing you know if there's I can't think of a way to really celebrate that you know by going through I think I'd probably end up uh, neutralizing <laughs> the impact by reading every single line of dialogue and every uh, every sort of character pivot but you know yeah. it, I, I just was so amazed that by the end this whole thing wraps up so neatly and it's not contrived no and it doesn't wrap up in terms of bringing things to like a third act conclusion it no, just kind of settles doesn't it oh yeah I mean and it's still quite grim in places you know mm. one of the characters has betrayed his entire community and and probably has resulted in a, a large amount of bankruptcies yeah, and, yeah. you know had a really devastating effect but it's also kind of saying I think that that stuff while it is important it's to not. people's lives you know the, the, the things that help us cope are the people around us yeah I watched it for the third time I had to watch it twice this week obviously once to watch it again <laughs> for the first time in years and then another time just to kind of make notes when I was making notes one thing I did notice is that it, it feels effortless when you're watching it but when I was breaking down the scenes and making notes and stuff for, for certainly for the like the first like, inverted commas act of the movie it's just brilliantly economical yeah, in, yeah. in structure like it, I mean you, you have a, a credits montage which is just fades in and out of black onto, onto scenes in this is it yeah. North Bath? North, North Bath. Bath. So you're thinking you're just seeing sort of scene just setting postcards, stuff. Yeah, yeah, in the snow. But within that, just within the credits montage, there's stuff that pays off later in the film. Exactly, yeah. You see wide shots and stuff, and you see you know what, what look like anonymous kind of establishing shots. Well, they, well, But also what they're doing, even in the structure of the opening tiles, they're stepping from the bleak countryside, they step to the edge of town, mm. and then they step into town. And know. when you come into town, you see you know an old house on Bowden Street, which is very significant to yeah, the story. Yeah. And then you see kind of a street with a banner for the Ultimate Escape theme park, yeah. which is going to... So much information there already. Then you see Rub leaving home, and then you see the Iron Horse Bar, and then you see um, the old woman wandering out of the diner. Yeah, that's it, Hattie. Hattie, Mm. wandering out into the snow um, and being kind of dragged back in. Yeah, yeah. And all these things are going to pay off later in the film, and you don't know it. It's great. But then, you know, I was making notes on what what each scene was as we go through, and and each one is is just a very precise introduction to Sully's Mm -hmm. relation to every character. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't feel forced. You know, it's only watching it the third time and wanting to make notes that you you see this stuff. Yeah, you see the threads. Yeah, there's no padding there at all. Everything is part of the story, Mm. everything that you see. Even the cutaways are significant. They're not there to just pad a scene or to bridge between scenes. Mm. You know, each of them 
gives you a little story point. Whilst we've just talked about the credits montage, I just wanted to get this note in, and there's no real way to kind of shoot one in anywhere else. It's happening. Um, location shoot at the appropriate time of year. Real yeah, yeah. snow, real cold breath. I think it was a blizzard that year as well, wasn't yeah. it? They said uh, it was pretty tough work. But it makes such a difference. Yeah, yeah. Because you know these days, you know these days, these young <laughs> these people. Days, green screen. Um, but yeah, you know, there's there's moments when you're watching something and it's cold and you think and you're just looking, you're going digital breath, yes. digital breath, or you see and it's a film I like very much, um, a most violent year, oh yeah, okay, which is set in winter, um, and there are some scenes early on with some dreadful digital snow added in, but it's just the the bonus of having a great location at the right time of year. Oh yeah, it's yeah. the lighting and the weather and everything. Mm-hmm. And it's it must have been quite uncomfortable, but yeah, good though. You know, it's definitely authentic, isn't it? There's a really nice introduction to Miss Beryl here, the old lady, mm. looking out of the window as a branch comes off the <laughs> tree next door, crashes through a bird bath, and then she talks to the uh, picture of her dead husband, dead husband. Clive Senior, saying how uh, it feels like God is getting closer and closer to taking yeah. her away. Maybe this is the year he drops the boom. <laughs> drops the boom, yeah, yeah. I mean, the film's dedicated to Jessica Tandy, and I think she passed away before it was completed. I don't think she saw it. It's one of her last films, yeah. yeah. It's that nice thing where she keeps saying to Paul Newman, like, can I get you a cup of tea? <laughs> and he's like, not now, not ever, you know, and just sort of stuck to his guns. Yeah, and it's just the daily... I mean, they've been living there for decades, hasn't yeah. it? It's just the daily banter between them. But it pays off beautifully at the end, again, when she says it to him after he's gone through all of this story in the film and all of his interaction with all the other characters, and he gets home to her house, and he's. she says, can I get you a cup of tea? And he's like... Not now, not ever. And she just says, like, I think one day, you know, I just imagine you're going to change your mind. And he's like, you imagine that about me? Like, you can see it plays on his mind. Wow. <laughs> She's so still optimistic about him when, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll just whittle through the early scenes, but Mm-mm. jump in if you've got... Um... Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, I just sort of bullet-pointed about Rub. The, the nickname is, like, Rubberhead, isn't it? Which I think... Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah. I didn't know. Bruce Willis calls him Rubberhead at the um. Oh, okay. At the uh, card game is again a throwaway line, um, mm. which I only caught a second time round. And then it, I don't know if they never allude to it in the film, but he has a scar across his forehead, which is that supposed to indicate that maybe he took a bump or something? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's it's played so subtly that you don't know if he's kind of suffered some sort of injury or if he's just you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, some of the reviews at the time called him like slightly retarded yeah Roger which, Ebert kind of um, yeah. it used the phrase twice and it makes you wince yeah, his I mean, mentally retarded best friend yeah exactly I think you know he feels a little bit autistic there's that scene where um, there's a really nice convergence between Philip Seymour Hoffman Paul Newman and Pruitt Taylor Vince as they're uh, you know he's following they've, they've had a little domestic and he yeah. storms off and he just keeps walking <laughs> and all this uh you know, shooting and stuff's happening behind him. Yeah, a nice little cutaway to him just walking. <laughs> just away. still, yeah, stubbornly sulking off, which made me think, oh, you know, it's, maybe he's a little autistic. And I guess the 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 biggest scene out of these is um, Sully and Carl, um, Bruce Willis character. I, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit in this, but their their relationship here, I you know, they're kind of at odds at this time point. But yeah. I do get the feeling they were kind of like old friends and they got well, on a lot better in the past. But I also get the impression that Sully was friends with uh, Carl's dad. Oh, okay. there's that sequence yeah, yeah. where um, he talks about hard work and he says, you never worked hard for this. It was given to you mm. by your father who broke his back, making sure that you had something 
to inherit and then you've wasted it all on ski trips and then he's like I haven't been skiing for two years <laughs> you know there's, there's quite a sort of pettiness to it and it, at, uh, in the moment it feels quite spiky and quite pointed but the fact that he's walked into the office ha- helped himself to a cup of coffee you know he's obviously super comfortable there and mm. the first we've heard of this character is in the um, the courtroom where he's talking about trying to get money out of tip top construction mm. for an injury that he sustained falling off scaffolding well I get the feeling that prior to that injury they probably got on a lot better and there's, there's like the basis of a yeah you know, this, this spikiness is based on a friendship gone sour yeah but then, uh, you know, Bruce Willis's character, Carl, he's been cheating on his wife. And later on, we see him sleeping on Sully's couch. Yeah. You know, well, that's the thing. It's a lovely detail there. It's just it? one of those little unspoken things that yeah, yeah. gives you so much more about the relationship. Yeah, yeah. There's a really nice moment where we see his secretary run out of an adjoining office and she has like stubble rash on her chin <laughs> and her chin's bright red. You don't often see like those kind of details. I just thought that was really nice. And they talk about Carl having had a heart bypass recently and, mm. and spent a lot of money on that and also being a little bit panicky and insecure. and I mean, he's covering up a lot with his bravado, isn't he? Mm. But, so there's an odd moment immediately after that. It's one of the things that stuck out to me on my third viewing, I suppose. Um, so Sully reluctantly takes some work from Carl because he doesn't have any other work, shifting breeze blocks onto the back of his truck. And there's like... an what's quite an odd moment for this film it's like a little sort of fantasy moment of, yeah of, he's talked about it previously hasn't he about punching him through the window but then you get kind of like little fantasy moments of of carl flying through windows which is yeah. it's yeah it's one of the two little odd moments in this film i think this one doesn't quite work for me this yeah, time yeah they could have done without it but i mean it's also quite nice to see like you know bruce willis doing his own stun isn't he crashing <laughs> through the window falling a story at least due to the his knackered old truck getting a puncture he has to hitchhike back into town and the person that picks him up is his son who has been living away for years and has just come back for Thanksgiving And mm. well he does say it's been three years since he's seen him so I think they've kind of bumped into each other a lot over the years but not mm. had any contact really what is it? is it Dylan Walsh the actor yeah he's a funny looking actor isn't he I, I found him it's difficult it's a little bit yeah nine, 80s late 80s early 90s looking yeah, it looks when a bit like see, Clark Kent. That's exactly what I was going to say. It looks like like um, Tim Sale's version of Clark Kent. Yeah, yeah. With the massive square jaw and the enormous yeah, yeah. beef-fed body. But then also, what I think is quite good is that when you look at Paul Newman, who's obviously very handsome, and then you look at the woman that's playing his his ex-wife, she's actually quite solidly built and quite up upright and yeah. quite quite firm. Mm. And I think he's quite believable as their child. Mm. And obviously he's moved away from the small town and is a college professor. So he's kind of dressing that bit. But he does look like he's in disguise, doesn't he? Yeah. It made it difficult for me to warm to his character initially mm-hmm. every time I've watched it because he, he literally does look like your archetypal beefy American. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's quite a neutral, understated character as well. So there's little to cling to initially. I'm, I'm, this is not a criticism, it's yeah, just yeah. my prejudices coming to the fore. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so Peter is his estranged son and has, from from this very first introduction, somewhat fractured family life. Mm-mm. But it's, it, none of it's kind of melodramatic, and you know, he, later on when his wife goes back to the city, it's just happened. You know, we don't see any big row, we don't mm. see any sort of meltdown. But from this little dynamic inside the car with the uh, two children 
taking sides with the parents. And mm. It's quite nice, um, Sully's reaction to having you know, Whacker, the little um, grandson, um, hurt his leg. He's, he's quite, you know... He's livid, isn't he? He's livid. He is really yeah, quite like, angry. Stop, stop the car. And yeah. like, and he's like, he son of a bitch or something. Cool yeah. stuff, isn't he? he isn't like, you know, a soft edges, grouchy movie mm. old man. He is generally uh, angry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in a lot of pain, I think. Mm. So the next scene is the introduction to Carl's wife, Toby, which I find a little bit distracting, her having like a, a guy's name. Do you, find, do you find that distracting in life? Do you find it difficult? Well, it's not something that's keeping me up, but like when you meet I, when you meet a girl called Charlotte who calls herself Charlie, do you find it difficult to talk to her? Well, but Toby's <laughs> not short for anything, is it? It's not an abbreviation. No, that's true. Yeah, it's a, it's, that's like a, a guy's name, like Princess Michael. I always found that distracting. I do like the fact that in most of the scenes she's in, there's something more serious going on that's occupying her attention. Yeah. Uh, in this case, she's busy having the locks changed and throwing out throwing out Carl's clothes because mm. she knows that he's cheating on her but you know, in all of these scenes she's doing something else and that's that's taking up her attention but Sully kind of like she kind of warms to him and eventually yeah. her attention turns to him and you do get the feeling there's this kind of quiet quiet flirtation between yeah, them that's that it. always captured yeah him. that's it it's a sort of a genuine flirtation yeah. isn't it you know, and it, she's genuinely sort of charmed by him yeah and he's you know he's definitely a welcome distraction from the grief that she's dealing with every day with yeah. uh, having Carl as a husband mm. I do think it's quite nice as well that even when you know when Sully's talking to Toby um, he's not pushy and he's always kind of sympathetic to Carl you know there's a scene later on where he's stealing Carl's snowblower um, and he's talking to Toby he's leaning out the window he's caught mm -hmm. him doing it and he's saying you know give him another chance you know, yeah, he's, yeah. he's he's always sympathetic to him, and and you know, not trying to, not trying to cut in and deliberately steal his wife, but yeah, yeah, that's it. He's always trying to kind of. Well, if you imagine that he was friends with Carl's father, hmm. you know, I think he's still respecting his friend's son or something, and maybe there's, you know, one of the main points of the film is Sully trying to reconnect with his son, his own son, and his grandson, and maybe there's something about Carl's character that he feels a little bit responsible for as well yeah that's a good point yeah poker at the iron horse yeah. so this is this is where you know kind of introducing all the relationships between Sully and the different characters individually I love it, yeah after seeing all that yeah, all, all of that kind of interaction and then suddenly they're just all at the table all together at the table, all in the same room it's a nice sort of spiky actually scene as well isn't it you know they they all get kind of cool lines of dialogue mm. and yeah it's really nice and it's it's the first time that you get to see kind of a sense of the the, the town interaction it's kind of like a microcosm of the town you know how mm -hmm. everyone's kind of depend on each other yeah, yeah. and despite you know all their kind of slight grievances and differences you know they're all kind of in it together and working together and playing together and it's great to see that the chief yeah, yeah. of police <laughs> play playing a backroom poker game yeah, yeah, yeah. as if nothing's going on look i know we didn't do so good today but uh, there's a zillion things we can try nope when was the last time you won a case work what's that got to do with anything good great river around a green monkey's ass you know, Sully, you're the only guy I know still dumb enough to believe in luck. I used to believe in brains and hard work till I met you. <laughs> Deal. Seven card. Mm. Which one of your fancy doctors advised you to drink, smoke, and screw your brains out? Those are unreasonable requests, Sully. 
They wouldn't have made them if they didn't know me. If they'd known you, they wouldn't have fixed you. There you go, Jack. King Bits. I think the next major scene that I would talk about is when we're introduced to Clive Jr., yeah. Beryl's son. He he takes her and his investors uh, for lunch at the, at the local country club, and you immediately get a sense of him as kind of, you know, a, a social climber and a fairly unpleasant person. But also, well, I don't know, yeah, maybe, but also that sort of thing of a, a small town, you know, he's head of the bank, they call him the bank, you know, he's, uh, you know, the, the local bank manager, maybe, yeah. you know, I don't think he owns the bank, do you think he owns the bank? No, no, I think he just runs it and advises. Yeah, that's it, and so this is his opportunity to go from being, you know, a modest fish to being a big fish, if he can bring in this hundred million dollar theme park into the local area, property values will go up he'll be you know he'll be yeah the king of the, the town yeah that's yeah. it yeah he will have been the man that changed everybody's fortunes mm. and he's backed like one horse it's quite interesting at this point that this is the first time we've um, not been with Sully yeah um, when we were with Clive Jr and then you cut to another scene as well which is his son Peter at his mother's Thanksgiving yeah again it's, it. it's like we've spent a couple of scenes without Sully which mm. feels a little odd at first yeah yeah you miss him don't you yeah <laughs> Where's Sully? Mm. And then he's actually outside, isn't he, at the, uh, the Thanksgiving? So, yeah, in the, in the spirit of not doing it absolutely scene by scene, just jump forward a little. Um, and there's an important scene later where um, Sully and his Sully finds his grandson, Will, hiding in the back of his truck. Yeah, that's right. Um, after a huge Thanksgiving ruck. <laughs> Catastrophe. <laughs> away yeah. from. Um, and takes him to the Cozy Corner Diner and has a little chat with him. Yeah, he's, he's waiting for his uh, waiting for Peter to come and collect Will and take him home. Mm. And Will, being a kid, he's very open about his parents' uh, impending divorce and how the family's going to be split, one child with one parent and the other with the other, so on. I was I really enjoyed this time round noticing how I mean we're talking about in terms of the the character um, how Sully. Because part of this film is about Sully learning to, you know, warming to having a family, mm. having family connections. Taking responsibility for it as well. Yeah, like he's he's very friendly and and pleasant to Will from the start. Um, but he's you know he's he's quiet and cautious and he isn't trying to forge bonds. Yeah, I mean this. the scene ends with like it's a really powerful moment where his son says to him, "Did you think about me?" And he says, "You know." from time to time and he's like well, I thought about you every day you know like it, it was mad to be abandoned by your father you mm. know it's troubled this boy his whole life mm. and when he asks his father did you think about me he's like yeah you know <laughs> but it's, it's the fact that he isn't kind of he isn't gushing and he isn't kind no, of giving no. it but he's, he's absolutely honest but yeah that's it he still plays it like that as well mm. and you can see as Will's talking to him about the divorce he's just like okay yeah I can see you know, recognize some of this, and I can sort of piece it together, and mm. and it's that point of should he engage? Like, am I going to get involved in this? Is this my business? Yeah. And if I get involved in some way, yeah. is this going to backfire at yeah, all? Is, is it going to be a saga? You know, am I? Am I? Is it worth it? You know, I think all of that stuff's playing across his. Well, what I think about Sully as well, though, is is that he's. It's not just that he doesn't want to get involved out of self-interest. It's just that he knows that he's affected people's lives badly. Yeah, yeah. And he doesn't want to step in and make things mm. even worse again. Yeah, there's a throwaway line later on, isn't there, when Carl says 
to him, oh, you know, this person's going to be crying, and you know, as your ex-wife will testify, you you, you, you don't, don't handle, handle that too yeah. well, yeah. Yeah, you know, so there's that, like the whole town knows. You know, that's the thing. It's not like he's run away to a new place and started a new life. Mm. You know, the whole town still knows who he is. And immediately after that scene, there's there's just a brief interlude where Sully parks outside a, a broken down old house, and I think that the mo- the mood of the scene we've just watched kind of informs the fact that this house is significant to him feeling troubled about family relationships and his history and the past and these kind of things that we feel like he doesn't really spend much time thinking about but actually there is an echo of the past that's that's troubling him it's unresolved mm. and this is you know this is just a moment that sets up something that, that pays off uh, later in the film and there's a couple of nice scenes uh, to do with the snowblower hunting down the snowblower and nipping in to see Toby again. One little moment that I think stands out nicely in the middle of this uh, stealing the snowblower sequence is um, Peter says to Sully, you know, mum's biggest fear is that your life has been fun. And he just says to Peter, tell her not to worry. You know, this idea that it's been really tough actually living hand to mouth and, you know, being, you know, he he looks like uh, he's, he's a free agent, you know, he hasn't got a care in the world. But I think, Maybe as a young man, that's a, a nice way to live. But I think as you get older, and yeah, forty years down the line, <laughs> yeah, thirty years it. down the line, your body's it's... failing. You've got no money in the bank. You mm. know, you're still living hand to mouth as you approach retirement age. There's tons of like little uh, dialogue moments that you know raise a giggle. There's a really nice one with Sully when he's talking to Carl, and uh, he says, "You know, I used to believe in hard work and brains until I met you." <laughs> You know, there's loads of those little uh, little moments, but the one that I really loved was when um, in the scene we've just discussed. Yeah, where uh, they're about to steal the snowblower, and Sully has convinced his son to climb over a chain link fence to steal the snowblower, and he just says to him, "Don't get stuck! <coughs> Don't get stuck! That's it." My father walks out on his family when I'm a year old. All my life, I've been waiting for him to show up and act like a father. So here I am. Finally with my dad, together at last. Quality time, right? What are we doing? Breaking and entering. What are his words of wisdom? Don't get stuck. And then it's kind of the next day, and we have... Um, Something that was queued up in the in the credit sequence. Clive Jr.'s trying to get his mum to sell up the house and invest in the uh, real estate land, near yeah. to the theme park. Yeah, That's pretty cold, isn't it? Trying to get your mum to sell a house. Well, investment. I, I get the feeling there's been sort of, you know, that sort of chicanery throughout his entire life. You think he's always been after the family treasure trove? Yeah, I think Sully has such a low opinion of him, and it becomes clear later that pretty much everyone has such a low opinion of him, mm-hmm. that I think there must be some sort of, you know... As I say, he's been sneaking around in Sully's room, hasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> so Clive Jr.'s pestering Miss Beryl to, to kick him out for no good reason other than... Cigarette butts, he says. Yeah, you know, well, that he's he, going to start a fire. And here's the thing, though. Um, I, he says um, everyone else in town can see through him except you, but that's completely undercut. He's talking about by himself, him. really, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. He's projecting. And then there's a wonderful scene after that. Miss Hattie, who we've seen wandering out of the diner um, and being dragged back in by presumably her daughter. Miss Beryl notices her wandering, wandering through the streets in the snow again, and sends Sully out to to get her, and he kind of 
chums are back into the yeah, diner. But he goes out like barefoot, doesn't put his coat on, it's mm. the middle of winter. And Clive Jr. stood right there, and Miss Bell doesn't ask her son yeah. to go after him. You know, she knows that he's not responsible enough, even for that. And then once he's charmed Miss ha- Miss Hattie, in one of my one of my favourite details in the entire film is the fact that you know when her daughter, who runs the diner, presumably, yeah, yeah. takes her back, he, he automatically puts an apron on and starts helping out in the diner. Yeah, he has to, doesn't he? <laughs> she says like, take an apron, and he, what he wants to do is have a cup. Of, he's freezing cold. Wants to have a cup of coffee instead. He has to start serving, serving food. But he does it without complaint. Apart yeah, from yeah. The, like not even time for a cup of coffee and, yeah, yeah. and joins in and then you know by complete contrast Clive Jr. turns up to mm-hmm. to pester him and yeah about nonsense and it's just again it's it's a nice small town diner scene and it's it's played lovely but but what it does for me as well it gives you the, it, it gives you a glimpse of the sort of the steel in Sully's character yeah true he 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 does get angry and he doesn't mm. You know, he doesn't he doesn't bully him, but he doesn't take any bullshit from Clive Junior. Yeah, he does puts say puts him in his place. Yeah, he needs to say, you know, you, your mother is the only reason you haven't taken a kicking, basically. <laughs> and, and I do like that, the fact that, you know, this is a feel good movie and mm. you run the risk of, of softening the character too much. But you know, he does have steel. He is yeah, yeah, he it. is quite tough when he needs to be. Yeah, yeah. And you you get that later on as well. Some of the scenes with Rob where Rob's like, Oh, I just want it to be the two of us working together and he's like, Look, he's my son. Okay, you know, I'm I'm trying to do this now. Stop whining, basically. Stop your mm. belly aching. Yeah, you know, he can be quite tough with people as well. Same. Yeah, he, it's like, do it because I say so. Yeah, yeah, and he He's... punches out the policeman. And, you know, it's yeah. So immediately after the diner scene, there's a there's a lovely scene in the Iron Horse, which I'm not going to go into in detail, but it's very funny. The screenplay does this really, you know, the terrific thing where it softens you up with humour, and then it'll take you somewhere quite dark, and it's twice as powerful because of that. Mm-hmm. So the following scene is Sully and Peter doing their sort of light bonding, oh, yeah. stealing, drugging a dog, yeah, yeah. and stealing back the um, snowblower. But then that that kind of shades into darkness when, when they drop by the house at Bowden again. That's it. So yeah, that scene that you mentioned of him sitting outside alone, this old house, mm. yeah, pays off beautifully when he takes his son to see his childhood home, and just says like, "This is." This is where I grew up, and the experience of your grandfather was a brutal alcoholic man who made my mother, this tiny woman, fly. Mm. The way he says that, you know, it's like those pictures are so vivid in his mind from that abusive childhood that he's never really come to terms with that. What I like about it also is that at the end, um, you know, when, when Sully shared this and Peter's taken it in, there isn't any instant forgiveness, you know. Um, oh, Sully, that, Sully yeah. says, you know, uh, about his father. He says, "You fuck him forever," and yeah, then he turns yeah, to him, yeah, trying yeah. to lighten the mood. Says to Peter, "I guess you'd say that about me someday." And he says, "He says um, you'll say that about me when I'm gone." And he's like, "You were gone, and I've already said it." Mm. Wow, it's so good, <laughs> isn't it? God, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, that's a brilliant, brilliant piece of dialogue. Mm. But it doesn't, you know. This this is a, a, a feel good movie, but it doesn't mm. tie scenes up neatly with forgiveness instantly. Yeah, does it? I mean, there is something in Peter's character all the way through the film that he is sort of light and happy to be engaged with his father, but he also does leave a few barbed comments. Yeah, you know, and it makes a point of his kind of resentment, and there's a little bit of jealousy when Will, his son, is getting more attention than he mm. does from his own father. You know, and uh, you know he says it. I'm, I'm trying now. You know, that's mm. that's all I can do. You know, in in terms of like the the structure of why of, and 
writing as well. I mean, another th- another thing I like another thing. is that um, it sets things up. It sets up antagonisms, which in another movie you'd expect to you'd expect it to spin its wheels and resolve it. You mm-hmm. know, half an hour later. Yeah, yeah. But it'll resolve them, or if not resolve them, it'll it'll soften them in the next scene. Yeah, yeah. So there's that other scene later on where, um, well, we'll we'll come to it. But there's a scene where. Uh, Peter is again angry at his father and you think okay well this is the second act mm-hmm. you know get them up the tree and then you'll get them down the tree in the mm-hmm. third act but no it's it's kind of partially resolved in the next scene mm-hmm. I, I really like that that's it's it's really unpredictable in mm-hmm. the writing you know you're not going to get these cliched yeah. character arc structures which I think it is where it's really clever that it does a lot of the structural requirements of a film but also maintains the kind of honesty of real life mm. there's a lovely little character moment at the end of this evening that Sully and Peter spend together and it's just again it's another thing I like about the character the fact and the way that Paul Newman plays him is the fact that he, he expresses pleasure you know yeah, there's a bit yeah. at the end where he's just enjoyed the evening and he just kind of like pounds the truck twice just because he's had a good evening yeah yeah that's it that's sort of his um, good luck token as well yeah there's a really nice moment as well with um where Sully takes Will out for a few hours, you know, to, whilst he goes about his daily rounds at work, and there's a scene with him. He lets him drive drive the truck. Oh yeah, that's lovely. But I mean, it's a really straightforward scene, but it's just the, the pleasure on his face. Yeah, but you know what it is? It's not the driving that gives him pleasure. It's the fact that he drives that knackered old truck that everybody hates, and his grandson, when he's he's saying, "Why is the steering wheel so shaky?" and he's like, "Oh, it's a really old truck." And he's going, I like this truck. It's a nice truck. Yeah. <laughs> and, he's just a... and he beams, doesn't he? Because nobody's <laughs> ever said that to him before. You know, you've had Philip Seymour Hoffman saying, this death trap, you know, your truck is a piece of shit. I want it off the road. I want it out of the town, you know. And just to have this little boy say, I like this truck. It's a nice truck. <laughs> yeah, it really it's... touches him. It's beautiful. There's the lovely scene with Toby when she's um, back with Carl working in Tip Top Construction's <laughs> office. Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, yeah, because she doesn't know that that's his grandson either yeah so, and he's yeah. really really reluctant to show that he has <laughs> he a grandson <laughs> and kind of hiding his grandson and, and not admitting to who he is and to then... being that old to being so old that he's got a grandson to this young lady that scene does end really nicely where she flashes her boobs at him and he's stunned <laughs> he's stunned and doesn't know what to do yeah. or say and then we just hear Will saying <laughs> what's the matter grandpa and then she just mimics Will going what's the matter grandpa and he just has to leave doesn't he you know Again, um, sorry to get technical, but uh, amazing screenplay construction because you go from that scene into possibly the second darkest scene in the film where you go to the house on Bowden again. Oh, yeah. With Carl. And I think it's a phenomenal scene. Yeah, it's really good. It's Bruce really Willis good is doing all the talking in the yeah. background, and Paul Newman is just mm. experiencing everything all over again. Yeah, you feel like he hasn't stepped through that door. Mm. It's, it's absolutely devastating. And the you know for me the reason that it works so well is because you've been softened up mm. so much with the previous scene. Yeah, and then there's also like a little subplot to even this scene where Sully has left his grandson outside, who's only you know barely four or five years old, and he forgets that he's there. Obviously, he's experiencing his own, he's reliving his own childhood trauma at the same time as he's adding to his grandson's <laughs> childhood trauma in a much you know lighter way. But still, he's forgotten that he's out there, and the little boy's terrified mm. this is the point again where um the, the it i mentioned it before it opens up a little rift between sully and peter i should have known you'd never change yeah yeah um which is quite heavy-handed i thought um 
but I just, I, yeah, but he's again, protecting I'm... his kid, isn't he? You know, I think he's and he's just reacting in the moment. All of that stuff that's been built up over yeah. decades, you know, of neglect. But I've got that note again that I mentioned before. You know, economy in a in a lesser film, this this would have been dragged out for the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. But in the following scene, um, you get Sully comes to try and not to try and make amends, but to. Oh yeah, it's the very next scene, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's the very next scene. Ding dong, and he's yeah. at the door. He's like, "I want to speak to my grandson," and manages to to reassure Will somewhat. And yeah, just you just know. builds another bridge with Peter. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And but also again, it's not just about concluding that arc. The the idea of giving his grandson a stopwatch that he can use to time himself when he needs to be brave. Mm. It feels like a nice way of just saying, "Oh look, I'm sorry about this. Sorry about that." Blah blah blah. But then it pays off. Nicely at the end, where he, yeah. he's got the lawyer's leg, and he has to give it back, and he sets the stopwatch, and it's, it's probably the the biggest Hollywood moment where people in the bar stop to turn around and look at this little boy carrying a, a, a leg through a bar. But mm. yeah, it's still it's still a really nice. It's a Christmas film. That's yeah. That is one of the Christmas moments. Yeah. So the next scene is is Miss Beryl's stroke, and. It has the other moment I was talking about, which is the slightly odd for this, but I think it's it's quite beautiful and and effective the way it works. You have her kind of sitting down to a cup of tea, and the camera pulls back, and it seems to be snowing inside yeah, the room. Yeah, that's it. It's a nice sort of this like sparks that you hear about when you're having a stroke. You mm. start to see like uh, you know lights before your eyes, and it, it it's that isn't yeah. it? That little twinkle. It's, I I kept expecting because it's quite light snow at first. Mm. I kept expecting. T- to pull back and for the frame Fincher, yeah. well no for the frame to be wider and, and expect that we would be have been seeing this through a window because it is snowing quite heavily outside yeah, yeah. but no yeah, it actually is kind of like you know snow within the room yeah yeah it's a really nice little detail there actually you feel that at this point this might be the, the, the sort of tragic turning point in the script but yeah because he comes barreling in doesn't he and says mm. oh you died in your sleep old girl and then she's on the floor and you think oh shit maybe she has what I really, really like, and what I think is one of the quiet, unspoken key moments in their relationship, is the fact that your next cut is to Sully waiting in the hospital, mm. and you realise he, you know, this is where you know just within that cut that he is her son. Really, he's he's more her son than Clive Junior ever was. He's yeah. there for, he's waiting for her in the hospital. He's absolutely, you know, terrified. He's committed. And, isn't yeah. It? yeah. But I think it's wonderful that, that she's up and about and this isn't a tragic turning point for the movie. Yeah, yeah, she's, she's just totally a fine. Minor yeah, stroke. A minor stroke, yeah. She's out the, out the next day mm. and she's saying, like, don't tell my son. And he's yeah. like, well, I have to tell him you're his next of kin. And she's like, no, he'll use this to put me in a home mm. and he'll never let me out and I think that would kill me. And he's like, oh, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> she uses that lovely um, metaphor to um, describe how she feels about Sully. And she says, you know, you're talking about the trifecta bet that he's always putting into his... Has it ever paid <laughs> yeah. off yet? Um, he says no, you know, but you know you got to keep hoping. She says, "Well, that's how I feel about you." <laughs> uh, watching that this time around, you sort of tear up. Yeah, yeah, it's lovely. <laughs> Things are put it? that beautifully. Yeah, the odds have to kick in sooner or later. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's lovely, absolutely lovely. I guess if we're just sort of filing quickly through the uh, the next few scenes, you get um, uh, Rub quitting his job because he's jealous of Peter. We get. Uh, Officer Raymer turning up and discharging his weapon and then getting knocked out by uh, Sully um, and this is sort of how Sully ends up in jail over over oh, Christmas <laughs> yeah. um, and you know uh, Clive Jr. tries to use that as an excuse to 
get his mum to sell up, you know, all of these things happen. But then sometime in the background, Hattie, the mother from the diner, who's, it's called Hattie's Diner, so she must have been, right. you know, the original proprietor mm. before passing on to her daughter. She's died and it's her funeral and Sully is let out of jail um, <laughs> to only, attend. Only in a small town yeah. for the guy get out of jail to be a pallbearer. But obviously, uh, you know, this being the mid-90s, he hasn't really kept up with what's going on in the communities, had no phone or internet access while he's been in jail, and uh, the trifecta bet that he's been betting every day of his life has come in, but because he was in prison, he didn't place the bet mm. at the same time that the deal for the huge theme park that was promised as a massive investment in, in the local area has collapsed. Mm. Clive Jr. is absconded and all the, each, each bit of news he gets while he's carrying Hattie's coffin makes him stop and turn around and so the coffin Almost is going to... drop the coffin. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And the undertaker's like, gentlemen, respect, please. But it's, it's one of those lovely... It's like the poker scenes. It's one of those lovely sort of community scenes as well where you realise how kind of people bond and interact. It's a really nice... Um, you don't get many... Um, big camera shots in this but there's a really nice kind of crane shot to pull back and frame them yeah, yeah. as they're walking away so you have this um, absolutely lovely scene between Sully and Rub well Sully's out of prison mm. and his first kind of chore that he does that we see is he goes to see his friend and just say like you know, get some perspective you're my best friend mm. don't worry about my son he's my son and the relationships are different they're not the same and just the way he sort of puts that to him you know, breaks the ice by talking about because it's so cold that his the tip of his dick's going to stick to the uh, the stone the the sitting up. but it, again it's Pruitt Taylor Vince just plays it so beautifully he's oh just God, so yeah. open isn't he yeah what Sully says you're my best friend there's nothing there's just nothing else apart from this moment where um, Rob he just tears up mm. like to hear that to to feel validated that his position has worth that you know somebody loves him like a best friend and mm. that was all he ne ever needed and his response and reaction is it's, it's, he just like he, he doesn't move or do anything but his no. eyes go don't they yeah. it really puts a lump in your throat you kind of hope that people would sit you down you know all over the place and just say you're my best friend you'd be like oh my god <laughs> I always love that thing in Curb Your Enthusiasm where Funkhauser would say to Larry say you're my best friend <laughs> Larry would just say, you're not my best friend. No, I'm not your best friend. No, no, no. Like, he didn't want that kind of closeness at all. This has the opposite effect. Did you notice that incredible bit of background location? Because it opens with this really nice shot. Um, it kind of cranes up from Rub sitting on his doorstep in yeah. the cold. And it cranes up to a wide shot of the street. as yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you see the factory in the background? Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. No, but it was one of those you know, beautiful old buildings with, like, different... Coloured yeah, yeah. stained glass panes and everything. Mm -hmm. Ah, oh, that's just that's apropos of nothing at all. But <laughs> yeah. I really like it. Yeah, that's it. And then we're back into the the second poker game. The tone is different because obviously Carl has lost the shirt off his back, and he's like, "Oh, why wouldn't this be the the day where I lose every hand that I play?" And you can see the scar from his surgery, and mm. just to sort of remind us what he's been through. And yeah. He has his new secretary with him. Um, <laughs> Who's also lost the shirt off her back. <laughs> Sully's winning, you know, for the first time it feels like. Now he's out of jail, maybe turned a corner, and he's winning at poker. Yeah, and he's about to, to win big again, because Toby's finally had enough of Carl's affairs, and she turns up dressed in a beautiful red dress with tickets for her and, her and, Sully her to and go. Sully to go to Hawaii, the thing yeah, they've always yeah. fantasised about. 
She's going to make it a reality for him. The doc says something like, damn, Sully. When your luck turns, it really turns. It really turns. It's a really nice moment. Carl calls his bluff, doesn't he? He's like, you won't do it. You're not that kind of guy. Yeah, and also says, you know, one of the things I didn't get until I saw it this time round is is how ambiguous it is as to who's letting down who. Um, you know, Carl says, you know, she won't go through with it. You know, you may leave now, but you'll be over canvas, Kansas in a plane and she'll start crying and because she can never leave him. Mm. And I, I'd always thought watching it before that, um, that that had actually happened and she was crying in the car and Sully realised it wasn't going to happen. Mm. But as much of it really is, is as Sully explains to her, um, is that he, he can't do it either because he yeah. realises that he has bonds that he didn't know about until recently. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? You know, he's saying... I think I'm a father yeah, and, a, and grandfather, a grandfather and a best friend and a best friend yeah like he's saying it all out loud like for the first time yeah and then he can't go with her you know he gives her a kiss goodbye and she says we would have been terrific together and you sort of believe it you know you believe that it's not just a compliment that that is one possible path that they could have taken you know mm. improvised a life in Hawaii it's interesting watching it as um, as somebody in my 20s it was, you know, a disappointment that they didn't that they didn't leave together. Mm. But it's only watching it as as a grown adult, shall we say, that you realise how how much of a a betrayal that would have been of all the people that he's just yeah, yeah. built up his relationships with. Yeah, and I have to say as well, this is one of those very rare occasions where you see an older man and a much younger woman together, and it doesn't creep you out. I don't know how you felt about it. I didn't even when he kisses her. I didn't feel like ooh easy there <clears throat> well I wonder if anything's anything to do with that is because of the timelessness of Paul Newman yeah maybe he could always be anything between 40 and 60 whenever you're watching mm. um, but yeah no, I think well you know you've, you've built up the characters enough to that's like it, them that's it so then there's um, a, a kind of a three part scene in the Iron Horse later that evening where Sully's gone back and has continued drinking yes yeah, so we get a, a, a line from Sully where he says uh Something about being in prison meant that he wasn't able to give Peter his Christmas present. And he gives him a quarter and just says, like, call your wife. And you get this uh, telephone reconciliation between Peter and his wife. And he asks his father if he can have a few days off work. And... But it's nice, it's nice realisation of Sully's there that, you know, because I think Peter was quite enjoying the freedom for a while. And, and yeah. the, the respite well, he was starting to settle into this uh, small town life and was looking at an apartment for him and his son and you know that's it but he wasn't seeing what Sully was seeing the fact that you know he's in a way he's kind of repeating his father's mistake yeah, and yeah. he'd left one son behind mm-hmm. so it's, you know it's, it's quite a nice character moment that Sully's kind of realised that and he's you know, perhaps putting his own you know his own kind of emotional well-being to one side yeah, I think he likes having his son and grandson around, but he also realizes that he can can't do that. Make an intervention and somehow get this family back together. Um, and then Sully has a conversation with Worth, in which he learns that that Miss Beryl has has paid all the back taxes on the house on Bowden Street, so the house is now his. And this is a, a an incredible moment for Worth because he's been kind of like a a, a comedy character up yeah, to this see, point. He's been, he's been a like relief. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and at this point, it becomes very serious. He says, "Like you know, when you see her, thank her and be grateful, or I'm or I'm done with you for yeah, good." Yeah, that's it. It's it's his Christmas favor, isn't it? He says, yeah. "Here's one thing I want you to do: is be grateful." 
I really liked in the fact that in this scene, which is effectively between two people, you do get a really nice cutaway to the reaction from the landlady. Mm-hmm. You know, the woman who's yeah, yeah. who's just been watching quietly. She's just she's... been a lovely presence all the way through as well. Another sort of reliable, mm. you know, face in the crowd. And then we learn from Peter that Sully's trifecta ticket paid off. Yeah, he played his and father's he played it. trifecta ticket while he was in prison. It's going to get like just under six grand, isn't he? So he's got his house back and maybe, the, you know, and again, this is pretty much where the film ends, but you've been given enough seeds to understand that he's got his house back. He's probably got enough money to restore it. Mm. He'll have a space where his son and grandson can come to visit. You know, he's suddenly, you know, it's still maintaining his independence, but also mm. being more of a, a presence in the family. Did you think that he would keep the house? I thought at that point, because I, I don't think that he would be strong enough. I mean, I know in the following scene he goes to collect his Christmas gift from Carl, which is the dog whose temperament he ruined. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know he was more comfortable in the house at that point, but I didn't get the feeling that he would ever keep it. I thought he might sell it. Well, yeah, he's got options, basically. The paying off the back taxes and winning some cash means that he's got some options. So if he doesn't restore the house, he'll get another house. He'll get something his family can come and see him and, mm. and the final scene which again it's is kind of like the I wouldn't call it neutral pacing but the undramatic kind of pacing of this movie means that you get to the final scene and it doesn't feel like it's you know it's not queuing you up for the final scene is mm-hmm. it it's just another scene it's the last scene between Miss Beryl and Sully as he comes yeah, home yeah. after this incredibly long day <laughs> yeah, yeah. he's exhausted she's asleep isn't she yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of the middle of the night and she lets him in and sits him down, offers him a cup of tea. Um, he's been fixing the um, the handrail outside that he's been promising to do for the for entire the whole movie. film. Yeah. <laughs> so he's just uh, tagged that. It's like New Year now as well, isn't it? Yes, but it's the it's the last scene between them, and um, and they they have a conversation. And there's something about the way that he talked to her and indirectly thanked her by saying. You know, there's a, a rumour around town that you've been sticking your nose in where it doesn't belong and you've done a good thing. Um, and she responds something like, I'm an old lady, that's my prerogative. And he's like, well, I forgive you. That's what he says to her. We're paying off all of his debts, he says to her, I forgive you. And yeah. she says, thank you. Like It's a really well, it's, nice, yeah, well, this nice is, playful moment between them. Yeah, and rather than letting it, you know, you always run the risk of it getting too sugary, but he's still yeah. quite a salty character yeah, and he still kind it. of balances it out. Yeah, it? but that's it. And the dialogue is in kind of contrast to their eye contact. And, you know, it's just a really nice, nice, nicely played scene, I think. Mm. And it's a really nice moment to kind of step out of this small town and let the credits roll shortly after he falls asleep in the armchair, a cigarette in his mouth that she plucks yeah. away and he's only managed to get one boot off and he's wiped out but he does have that like a, almost a smile on his yeah, sleeping it's, it's, face it's, it's yeah, a smile of kind of sleeping contentment and it's only when you get the slow fade to black that you realise oh, this is the end of the film and it's mm. it's the perfect end yeah it's lovely so it's time for one of our kind of lame conclusions where we don't really wrap up properly <laughs> maybe we need to like start a petition to get this onto everybody's Christmas list Christmas watch list yeah like a 4k restoration in cinemas every year at Christmas <laughs> maybe I should start writing it in, in big letters on the Prince Charles chalkboard downstairs oh yeah okay they do seem to put some rarities on um, yeah it's just really frustrating that, that something that is a classic mm. that is a, f- a fantastic film isn't regarded that way it's just it's just not 
Yeah, it's disappeared, isn't it? You know, I I don't think I'd even heard of it when you flagged it up. I only heard of it, you know, I only got to see it, like, I don't know, 97, 98 maybe, mm-hmm. um, a few years after it came out, and I'd, I'd never heard of it then. Yeah, sure. And I picked it up on DVD, you know, three or four years later, but it's it's just, it's just, you know, I'd never heard of it either. Yeah. It's just gone. It's the uh, kind of movie that the word wonderful <laughs> was was created for, isn't it? It's just, it's a wonderful piece of cinema, mm. you know, it, it, nothing showy about it, but just really kind of delicate and detailed and mm. you know you've yeah it's everything you want from a, a christmas <laughs> movie it's a seasonal surprise absolutely it's there you go there's, <laughs> there's a good end line a seasonal surprise a seasonal, merry christmas everyone <laughs> merry christmas <laughs> to one and all <laughs> <laughs>